0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview.
1: As lawyers, it's our duty to defend our clients and to fight for justice. But today we'll be talking about a limit to that duty, the difference between fighting for justice and helping clients to commit crimes hello and welcome to talks on law i'm joel cohen today we're joined remotely by professor peter joy of washington university in st louis professor joy welcome to talks on law
0: thank you i'm happy to be here
1: as i mentioned in the intro today we're talking a bit about a limit of lawyering as lawyers we're we're taught to fight for our clients Sometimes to zealously advocate for our clients, but there's a limit.
0: Absolutely. There's a limit to what we can do. So we can fight hard for our clients, but we have to do it within the bounds of the law and our ethical obligations.
1: Today we'll be exploring one limit in particular, the duty to investigate, but maybe up top we could talk about some of the the limitations on facilitating crime in general. What's the main overview in the ethics rules? We're not permitted to help clients to commit future crimes? The American
0: Bar Association Model Rules of Professional Conduct, which all the states have based their ethics rules on, contains Model Rule 1.2D, and it states that a lawyer shall not counsel a client to engage or assist a client in conduct that the lawyer Knows is criminal or fraudulent.
1: One example that I like on this topic is if your client asks, "Hey, lawyer, what countries don't have extradition treaties?"
0: Yeah, and that's a great example. I think it's in you know a fair number of legal ethics books. I know I've taught from ethics books uh, when I teach my course that have that. And so, if a client asks a lawyer that, you know, you're totally free to tell them. Now, if the client is charged with a crime and asks the lawyer that, that's where it becomes trickier because now raises the specter that the client's trying to get this information to try to run out on the pending charge against them.
1: Some other examples that our lawyers watching may remember would be if a client says, hey, I need you to dispose of this murder weapon for me or I I need you to help me move some of these ill-gotten funds.
0: Those two examples there, I think, are perfect examples that relate to the knowledge requirement that's in Rule 1.2 D. Because remember, it says that you shall not counsel a client to engage or assist a client in conduct that the lawyer knows is criminal or fraudulent. So there, where it's the murder weapon or you know it's illegal funds, you know that that client is going to be engaged in criminal or fraudulent activity. And that fits the actual knowledge definition for what knows means as it's defined in the ethics rules.
1: So I suppose those are more clear-cut examples. Today, we're going to talk about something a little more nuanced, which is a duty to investigate. I know that sometimes there's this you know, ostrich defense isn't acceptable if all the red flags are there and you refuse to ask the uh, the obvious question, that's just not good enough?
0: The ostrich defense, sometimes also referred to as the willful blindness defense, that comes in in terms of the criminal law. And that's absolutely true that in criminal law, there is this concept that you can't be willfully blind to something. You can't avoid obtaining information. Such a thing doesn't exist in the plain language of the ethics rules, but the American Bar Association Legal Ethics Committee issued a formal opinion where they're reading that into the ethics rules. They're basically interpreting the ethics rules to say that there's now a willful blindness when you have a client engaging in some transactional matter and you have a duty to inquire or investigate to learn more.
1: And this is actually a relatively new development. The opinion you're talking about is only from 2020.
0: That's right. It's ABA Formal Opinion 491.
1: And did I detect in the tone of your voice a little bit of of skepticism in in this latest development?
0: Yes, I'm not personally saying that perhaps there shouldn't be something in the ethics rules. But I am against the idea of reading something into the ethics rules that really isn't there. And that's what this duty to investigate that they've created, or at least are attempting to create, have done. Because before that ethics opinion came out, ethics authorities were uniform in saying that knowledge you know, means what the definition says, which is actual knowledge. And some have said, well, perhaps there should be some duty to investigate. But the Ethics Committee doesn't have the authority just to create a new duty. That's something that the ABA House of Delegates has to do. And they didn't go that route. They are indicating that it's there. Uh, Somehow it's been there, and I guess uh, we just didn't realize it was really there in till they issued their opinion in 2020 saying that it's there. And now they're equating willful blindness with knowing. And it just, as I mentioned, just not in the plain language of the ethics rule.
1: Well, I think you mentioned it, but what does rule 1.2 actually say in terms of knowledge? Do you have the the phrase uh, fresh of mind?
0: Rule 1.2D talks about, you know, prohibiting a lawyer from assisting or counseling a client in conduct that the lawyer knows is criminal or fraudulent. And knows is defined in the ethics rules, in a different rule, in Rule 1.0F, as actual knowledge of the thing itself. So it's not what you reasonably should know, which is essentially the way that the ABA committee in their ethics opinion is now reading it into the rule. And reasonably knows is also defined in the ethics rules. And that basically does have this duty to acquire because you, you know, have to reasonably should know. And there, that's defined in rule 1.0j. And it's defined as a lawyer of reasonable prudence and competence would ascertain the matter in question. I want to point out that some states actually have changed their Rule 1.2D long before the ABA formal ethics opinion to state that you shall not counsel a client to engage or assist a client in conduct that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know is criminal or fraudulent. But that's not what's in the ABA model rules that the opinion interprets.
1: Do you have any states offhand that you remember that have that reasonable language?
0: One of the states is Florida that has that, and in fact, in the ethics opinion, they cite as authority for their position a disciplinary case, but that disciplinary case out of Florida, you know, relied on the Florida ethics rule and not the model rule.
1: Which was broader.
0: Yeah, the uh, opinion, my my opinion, <laughs> uh, leaves a lot to be desired in terms of the uh, purported authority it relies on. I guess the other thing I'll point out is the ABA formal opinion, which is viewed by jurisdictions as persuasive authority, directly is in contradiction with the restatement of the law governing lawyers, which is the treatise that the American law institution puts out on the ethical obligations of lawyer, where it too, the restatement, sticks with the knowledge, meaning actual knowledge, and it does that because that's what the ethics rule, uh, the model rules say.
1: Before we go further into the duty to investigate, what would be the obligation if a lawyer does actually know, or in the states where reasonably... Should have known is is the standard. What's the obligation of the lawyer in such a case if they know that their client is attempting to do something illegal?
0: The first thing is you can't assist them or counsel them in what's illegal or or fraudulent. That means basically you have to withdraw from representing them in that matter. If you've already prepared something that the client is using, for example you've written a letter that the client might be showing to someone else in trying to do a business transaction where you verified some information the client has given you, you would likely have then an obligation to withdraw that letter because that letter is now being used by your client to engage in criminal or fraudulent activity. There is some discretion you have about reporting your client if the it's going to the activity is going to cause serious bodily injury or death you know that's a discretionary obligation in most jurisdictions a few make it mandatory basically to inform on your client and most jurisdictions also permit you to make a disclosure if it's going to be something that's going to create a serious financial loss But again, that's discretionary. It talks about may reveal rather than must or shall reveal, though there are a few jurisdictions that have the shall reveal obligation.
1: So if it was, I don't know, 2002 and your client was Bertie Madoff and he's telling you about his plan to raise a whole new round of of investments and you discover that, well, it's actually a Ponzi scheme, you may have the discretion, but not the obligation to inform, to let the FBI know.
0: That's right. In New York, where he was operating, it's discretionary. I'm almost positive that it's mandatory in Florida. and fairly certain, it's, it may be mandatory in New Jersey. So it depends on where the representation is taking place about is it discretionary or will it be mandatory?
1: Let's return to the duty to investigate. Why don't we start with what this particular committee, under their reading of the Model Rule, how would one analyze where the duty is raised?
0: What they're doing is they're reading Rule 1.2D, the knowledge requirement. They're saying knowledge can be equated with willful blindness so that you can't fail to inquire or investigate into the client's proposed transaction, if there is a high probability that the client is using the lawyer services to further criminal or fraudulent activity. And it gives some situations. So, for example, if There are a series of sales and purchases of property you would have a duty to inquire about, maybe the source of the funding for it, or all cash deals with some of the funds deposited in offshore accounts. I want to point out that the committee is relying in part on coming up with this, what they say is the interpretation of the existing rule, because the definition of knowledge, the actual definition says that, or the actual knowledge definition says that actual knowledge may be inferred from the circumstances. So they're they're really saying, well, you can infer actual knowledge from the circumstances, but actually that part of the definition, inferring from the circumstances, really is telling us how we might be able to prove actual knowledge, which is you know, the circumstantial evidence could be used to prove it. But they're not using it in that way. If they were, I I wouldn't quarrel with them. But instead of saying that's how we prove it, they say willful blindness is actual knowledge. That isn't what the rule says. They also say that they're limiting it to transactional matters. And the ethics rules, there are only a few of them that are specifically aimed for a particular type of practice. Rule 1.2d is not one of those. And the committee's statement that their opinion is only applicable to transactional matters, that's kind of a salutary statement, but it doesn't prohibit and, and can't anybody else from interpreting, well, maybe it applies in a litigation matter. Like if you're a criminal defense attorney and. A client who's unemployed comes to your office and gives you five thousand dollars cash to represent them in, you know, some minor criminal matter. Do you then have a duty to ask them where they got the money from? And if they say they got it from friends and family, do you have a duty to go further and check with their friends and family? In the same way, with some of the examples that the committee gives about a series of sales and purchases of property. You know, how much do you have to investigate and question your client? And also, the committee acknowledges that, you know, by inquiring and questioning your client, that's not going to be great for the attorney-client relationship, but they don't really provide much guidance on that.
1: You raise an important point, which is if you tee up the relationship with your client that well, if I start to get suspicious, I'm going to unravel the sweater, you may end up with a lot more obfuscation up front and perhaps you know less of a true attorney-client relationship.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Both attorney-client privilege and client confidentiality are based on this kind of understanding that it's better for clients to be truthful and open and honest with their lawyers, and that'll provide... know, their lawyers with the ability to give them the best advice, you know, so that they won't basically hide the ball on their lawyer. But if you have a situation where the lawyer is asking a lot of questions or investigating, uh, that might get a client then to basically not give this full disclosure to the attorney. There's also the question about if the investigation requires some time you know, and if you're charging by the hour, do you just absorb that expense? I mean, I if I were a client and I got a bill for three thousand dollars to investigate whether or not my proposed transaction was going to be legal or fraudulent, and I thought it was legal all all along, I'm probably going to contest that bill with my lawyer.
1: <laughs> that's uh, that's probably something that our our viewers hadn't thought of, which is if there's a duty to investigate, who pays for that?
0: Yeah, that's right. That's not discussed in the opinion.
1: We did an interview a couple of years back after this high-profile global witness investigation that suggested that a number of high net worth individuals overseas were using lawyers, particularly in New York, to launder money. I I won't put a spin on it. Is this an, an attempt to try and clean that up?
0: Absolutely. They make kind of an oblique reference to it in the text of the opinion. But if you then take a look at the footnote, they specifically footnote the 60-minute program that featured the global witness sting on, I think, about a dozen law firms in New York, including one of a prior ABA uh, past president. Now, none of these law firms did anything, you know, took any steps to represent this agent of Global Witness. Uh, It was just done as a sting operation. There were two lawyers, though, that were talking about the funds as being either gray money or money used to bribe individuals. And they received uh, written admonitions from the New York Bar Association, or Disciplinary Council, I should say, because they definitely cross the line. The other lawyers didn't cross the line, but were discussing things like the use of shell companies to buy buildings, which is something that's done all the time. In fact, in New York, I forget how many of the buildings are owned by these corporations that are owned by other corporations. And that's kind of a way that real estate is owned in some parts of the country, especially some big cities.
1: I can't help but... uh remember fondly that one lawyer who who not so subtly declined to take the case um with his what sounded to me like a brooklyn accent uh no it's not for me can you refer me to someone else i wouldn't because it would be an insult to them
0: that's right yeah he was the only one that flat out just didn't want to get into it and you know i'd like to point out that what was being proposed sounded really dodgy, because the uh, person from Global Witness said, I'm representing someone whose salary is only that of a teacher, say, in, here in the United States, but they were talking about purchasing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of things, I think building, maybe a yacht, stuff like that. Yeah, now that, you know, that's one of those situations where I think a reasonable lawyer would conclude, look, just like the lawyer that refused them, I don't even wanna be involved in anything like this right off the bat. But the other law firms didn't indicate that, and, but none of them took any steps to, that would lead them to actually represent the individual.
1: And now a quick break for those listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 228813. That's twenty 22- two. 8813. And now back to the interview. It certainly raises the question because if someone came to my office saying they represented a Ugandan businessman who wanted to buy a yacht and a penthouse, and that was my line of work, it would require perhaps some investigative skills that I might not have to discover whether this particular individual had inherited money in Uganda or had a, you know, a rich uh, relative who was putting up the money. These are questions that wouldn't require a small amount of investigation. It might require substantial investigation.
0: That's right. And also, just maybe altering your hypothetical just a little, let's say it's just somebody else that comes to your office and says, I represent a rich individual who's interested in buying a penthouse in New York, and that's kind of the work that you do in your law office, but is interested not having it in her own name, but would prefer to have it in the name of a corporation that couldn't necessarily be traced to her for privacy reasons. Could you assist me? I think that it would be reasonable for a lawyer to say, sure, the fact, then, if you change it to just say it's a somebody from another country who's rich, again, I think, you know, you could say, sure, but if you had doubts and you wanted to do the investigation, I think in either instance, it would take time and probably would be something that the lawyer, him or herself, couldn't do. And if your investigation existed solely of asking this person's representative, well, is this all legal? And were the funds all obtained legally? And the person said, yes, is that sufficient? Can you take their word for it? Or can't you? That's unclear from the uh, ethics opinion.
1: I still think that even with should have known, there's going to be plenty of gray area. As you mentioned, would any cash payment trigger enough of a, a suspicion? Would doing a deal with a client from certain regions be enough to trigger suspicion, there's still going to be a thought process, a decision tree involved.
0: That's definitely true. And I mean, one thing about the practice of law is I mentioned earlier about some of the discretionary authority. There's a lot of judgment involved. I think by actually including the reasonably should know or at least having that be considered as something to be included, it would sort of put lawyers on notice in the rule itself. They're going to be judged by what a reasonable, reasonably prudent and competent lawyer in their situation would do. Uh, sort of be like the community norm. Having the willful blindness provision just sort of created out of thin air in an ethics opinion, and I mean, I'm a law professor, I read the ethics opinions all the time, I teach them and stuff. I'm not sure what most lawyers do in terms of the ethics opinions, the ABA issue, unless they go to a continuing legal education course where some of them are discussed. And I just think that not having this in the rules itself, and not having some kind of debate in discussion about what should be required of a lawyer under a certain set of circumstances? What would be reasonable investigation? How much is to be done? What should you tell your client about the investigation you are going to conduct if you fit one of those situations? Those are all unanswered questions, having this just appear in a legal ethics opinion.
1: It also seems like a particularly difficult challenge to restrict lawyers' ability from doing legal transactions if the money was earned illegally in the past. It seems like it might be quite a challenge for lawyers to be able to track every input to a particular individual's net worth or investment vehicle.
0: Well, yeah, and I think it would be unreasonable to expect someone to do that. You know, one of the things that one learns just basically from reading the newspaper and reading the cases involved in money laundering is that a lot of individuals who've engaged in money laundering have a combination of illegal business activities and legal business activities. And that's part of how the money is being laundered. And I don't think anybody questions when someone like Bill Gates walks in to a lawyer's office and proposes something. Nobody's going to question where Bill Gates got his money because we all assume we know. He got it through Microsoft and his investments. Somebody who is, say, a, a recent immigrant walks into a lawyer's office. Shouldn't they be given the same basic benefit of appreciation? The person made their money... Conducting a legal business, and then do we just because the person is an immigrant or the person is from another country put them through an investigation that we wouldn't for someone that we just make an assumption about? So there are some aspects of this that I think are troubling about different assumptions that underlie it.
1: One thing that jumped out to me, I remember in looking through some ethical hypotheticals is in removing herself or himself from a case, a lawyer may actually be teeing up the case for the next lawyer. I'm sorry, client, Mr. Joy, I'm unable to take this case because as you described it, the funds that you'd like to use to purchase this townhouse appear to be criminally earned. So, you know, I wish you good luck, but I'm uncomfortable and the legal rules suggest that if I know that or have a reasonable grounds to believe that the funds were ill-gotten, then, you know, I'm not able to take the case. Well, what have I done but told this client to go on to the next lawyer and say something a little more convincing? I
0: think you're absolutely right. I also try to imagine a situation where somebody comes to a lawyer And let's just say, using your example, the person says, I have been engaged in a poker game, and I earned a lot of money over the years that I've kept separate, and now I'd like to use that money to buy a building. And you go, well, did you report your winnings to the Internal Revenue Service? No, I didn't, because it was illegal for me to do it. Well, you know, if it's illegal, then... The ethics rules would prohibit me from assisting you because that might be deemed as money laundering. You're right. Person would then go to the next lawyer and say, I have funds that I've earned in, you know, one way or the other. Maybe the person says, I, I went to Las Vegas and I hit it big, paid taxes on it, now I want to invest it before I squander it on more gambling. Yeah, the second lawyer perfectly reasonable for the second lawyer to accept that and do it. And you're right, the first lawyer could have inadvertently given the client basically the roadmap for what to say to get the legal representation they want.
1: I guess where I'm going with this is how can the rule be crafted or interpreted to create a more just system rather than just a less efficient system?
0: I don't have the answer to that, (laughs) so I'll start with that. But I do know that The best way of crafting the ethics rules is to go ahead and have a committee work on them, have drafts of it circulated, have input, have people raise the what-ifs, and then you end up with what you end up with. I mean, the current ethics rules aren't perfect. I don't think any set of ethics rules ever could be perfect. But we approach getting at least to the good when it's done in an open process and using an ethics opinion to create a duty that isn't clearly defined in the ethics rules is far from good
1: professor i'm not sure if you want to weigh in on your personal view but if this reasonably should have known was built into the actual rule let's say in the Florida style, is that something you would advocate for?
0: I'm not 100% sure because the way it is in Florida with the rule is now it applies to everything. Maybe there should be something specifically for certain transactional matters. That might be better. And I would like to see a process that would explore that. It certainly is true that there are more concerns in a transactional matter, and there are less countervailing considerations. So for example, in the criminal case example I gave you, there's a Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Uh, And this, you know, any inquiry might be impinging on the Sixth Amendment right to counsel if you start questioning the client. Now, there is a law that says that if you receive $10,000 in cash or more, or a series of cash transactions that exceed $10,000, there is an IRS reporting requirement. And lawyers follow that, or at least are supposed to follow that. And I think that sets a particular boundary when it comes to fees. But there are other areas. Uh, Immigration law is another place. Uh, You might have somebody who's entered the country legally, but is using a social security number that belongs to someone else and then their employer refuses to give them their pay that's owed to them and they come to see a lawyer what obligation would the lawyer have in that situation to inquire about is this client still using a social security number remember there's no obligation to report a past crime so having used that prior social security number is not anything that you need to report. You wouldn't be assisting the client, but if they are going to continue to use it, that's kind of a gray area too. So that's why I would like to take a look to see, could we really fashion something around transactional matters only, which is the intent of the committee. And I think that's a laudable intent. And that would be, I think, my first objective to see if that would be possible.
1: Professor Peter Joy, thank you for taking the time and for this conversation today.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
1: For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.